We'll be in Psalm 18 this morning. We'll do one through three and then skip ahead to verse 46. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. We'll skip ahead now to verse 46. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As far as natural disasters go, Denver is a fairly safe place to live. I know we've had a recent kind of uh, run of wildfires and even have someone here that's part of the congregation that lost their home to a wildfire last year, which is a devastating thing. But if you're thinking about places to live in the country or in the world, Denver is a fairly safe place. Um, One of the boys was actually talking with me yesterday as we were driving somewhere just about how we don't get hurricanes in Denver because we are so far from a large body of water. And we don't see that kind of flooding even if we see localized flooding. And we don't really have a problem with earthquakes. We don't really have a problem with volcanoes. Although I'm told when the Yellowstone, the super volcano of Yellowstone goes, like our entire planet is doomed. And and maybe that's how we all go out. But in terms of normal volcanic disasters, not much to fear there. We have hail and thunderstorms and, and that sort of thing. When I was first moving to Colorado nearly 20 years ago, I thought that Denver probably had a lot of tornadoes. And uh, I don't know if any of you are like this, but like uh, failing to plan is kind of planning to fail. And you can't make your plan in the middle of the emergency once the emergency has fully immersed your attention and you're terrified and your mind's not working straight. And uh, so you make this plan in advance. And my life started off in Indiana where we had more tornadoes. And uh, in, in many ways, I mean, my, my older sister's here, and I was, I was going to say the, the worst summer of my life was staying with them. So let me, let me clarify what I mean. In terms of natural disasters, they lived on the plains of Illinois, east of St. Louis, where there were a lot of tornadoes. And, and what made it bad is that they were in an apartment that had no underground anything, and we're actually up on the second floor. And so when you hear tornado sirens or you see the big storms coming on radar, it can be a very terrifying thing of literally this whole thing could just be gone. And, and everything else about that summer was amazing and awesome. Um, but, I was, but I was afraid, you know, to like go to sleep during the middle of a tornado. So this, this plan I have now is like if a tornado were to hit, like it hit Highlands Ranch a couple weeks ago for the first time in 20 years or whatever, I would take my family to the basement of our home, kind of like central basement, and get near something that is anchored to the substructure of the earth. Like we have a central foundation wall in the middle of the basement and get right next to that and then get like lower than that. And the idea is that this is not going anywhere because it's anchored to something deep. 
and were the whole home to collapse on top of us, this is strong enough structurally to bear a lot of weight of something collapsing, and it's the safest part of a home in a natural disaster. And I share this because this is kind of what this psalm is about, that David is reminding us that, that having a plan for when the disaster comes doesn't spare you from those trials of life. It doesn't spare you from the storm coming in the first place. Hopefully what it does is it ensures that you are safe through the midst of the storm, and he's looking to God to be that for him. You see here several times, even in the verses that we read of this big long psalm, he refers to the Lord, Yahweh, as his rock and uses a number of words that we'll look at in a moment. So um, four simple points this morning. Let's look at the setting of this psalm, the structure of the psalm, the storyline, because it tells a story, and then the Savior of Psalm 18. So a couple things about the setting. The first thing I want you to notice if you have a Bible open is the superscription. And we don't often look at these or make a big deal about these, but the superscription is right after that big bold number in your Bible, you will see some words, usually in all capital letters. And in, in a few Psalms, not, not many, but in some Psalms that gives you a little bit of a context for when was this written, who wrote it, under what circumstances. And we read this, to the choir master, so this is a song being created for worship, a Psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, and then the psalm goes on. So right there, we have a little bit of context. We know that David has, this is, this is further on in his life where he has met many enemies, including King Saul, but it says all of his enemies. Um, something else interesting about the setting of this particular psalm is that it's, it's repeated almost word for word in 2 Samuel 22. And in that context, it's in the middle of a narrative about King, or, yeah, King David's life. It's near the very end of his life. He's just come from battle from the, with the Philistines, like this great enemy army that had often opposed Israel and been a thorn in the side of Israel. And he writes this psalm. And basically what he's doing is he's looking back over many years of his life, many conflicts of his life, many literal battles. And he's saying, God, you've been so good to me. You've been so good. And let me recount the ways that you have been my rock. So that's the setting. Now, the, the second major point, and there's a reason for this, is the structure. Because the structure actually helps us see what this psalm is about. So the structure of this psalm, and it's, it's, we're in the middle of Hebrew poetry, and I'll just remind you, Hebrew poetry does not rhyme, okay? It's not like English poetry or a lot of other languages of poetry, but what you have are these rhetorical devices like couplets where the first line and the second line say the same thing two different ways and reinforce the meaning. What we encounter in this particular psalm is a rhetorical device called a chiasm where you build basic concepts and then you repeat them in reverse. And so we can look at this, verses 1 through 3, David praises God. We read that as our call to worship because it's a call to praise. You're my rock, my fortress. He heaps up these words and expressions of God as his defense. Then we go on, verses 4 through 19, God delivers David from his enemies. So whoever these enemies are, the Philistines, Saul, we know at least two of them, others... 
And then in the center of this psalm, verses 20 through 24, we see the reciprocity of God's justice. In other words, God lays out a standard and says, if you do this, you get this. If you do this instead, this is what you get in return. Then he flips around and is going to start working his way back through these ideas. So verses 25 through 27 essentially repeat 20 through 24 in different words. Then going to what would be called then B prime, backing out of the story again, a repetition of God delivering David from his enemies. And then A prime, the psalm ends where it begins with God being praised by David for this deliverance. Now, I share that because... This is the third longest psalm, I believe, in the whole Psalter. 150 psalms. I believe 50 is the third longest. It's 50 verses. That's why I didn't have us read it all like twice this morning, because it's long. But I want you to know that Psalm Psalm 18 is not about 50 different things. It's about three things. And, And there they are. We know from the structure, these are the big ideas that David wants us to understand as followers of Jesus today to see lived out in our lives. Okay, so now let's, let's talk about the storyline, and this is kind of then what these three main things are. And uh, we've already gone through some psalms that do not tell a story. Sometimes it's just praise, 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 end of psalm. Sometimes it's lament, 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 end of psalm. Sometimes it's this thing called imprecation, where the people of God are praying almost against their enemies, of like, God, if you don't do something with them, Evil is going to continue to triumph. People are going to continue to be oppressed and hurt and killed. And you care about stuff like that. But this particular psalm tells a story. So again, it it begins and ends with David praising and thanking God. But for what? For protection, for deliverance. We could say for salvation. Why did God save David? Because David walked with the Lord. And in many cases, his enemies did not. It's as simple as that, okay? Now, I want to unpack those ideas, and I want to start from the inside out. So I want to start in verses 20 through 27. And keep your Bibles open because we're going to be reading other sections. I think this will make sense to go through it this way. So we're starting in the middle with 20 through 27, and here's the big idea. God repays everyone justly. So notice verses 20 and 24 repeat in similar words David's claim. He says, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he he rewarded me. Verses 21 to 23, he goes on, For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God, for all his rules were before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him. And let's pause again and remember that we, we hear the, bl- the word blameless today and we think perfection. We think uh, a more complete moral purity without a single mark. And colloquially, that's not how the word was used in the Hebrew language. It's more direction than perfection, we could say. It's more David saying, I have followed after you, God. Have I stumbled and fallen? Yes, but I've followed after you. It's related to the word completeness or the word integrity. The idea is even when I fall, there's an integrity to my life to get back up, to confess my sin, and to continue following God. So that's what he's claiming, okay? I've walked in integrity, and God has rewarded me accordingly. 
Now look at this as he flips then and is going to start backing out from the center of this chiasm. Verses 25 through 27, he's going to say the same thing, but instead of being personal saying, God has done this with me because I was blameless, he's going to state more universal principles now. So this is more applicable to all of us about how God's justice works. So verse 25, he says, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty or proud eyes you bring down. And his point is very simple. He's just saying God is faithfully on the side of the faithful, the humble, the merciful. And isn't that exactly what Jesus said in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, where he's sharing these beatitudes, like who is the person that God blesses? And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart. David's basically saying the same thing. Who does God bless versus who does God bring judgment upon? Well, who does God bring judgment upon? He says it right here. God's opposed to the proud and the deceitful. And by the way, this, this verse, if you're familiar with the New Testament, is repeated twice, almost word for word, in James 4, verse 6, and 1 Peter 5, verse 5, we read, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Okay? We also read this, by the way, in the wisdom literature of Proverbs 3, where Solomon is writing to his son, and therefore kind of to all of us as the covenant people of God, and in wisdom literature, he's passing on this same truth that there's a reciprocity, there's a fairness, there's a justice to the way that God handles all of us. And there he says, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. And by the way, if you hear words like scornful and torturous, and you're like, wait, God is scornful? God is torturous? I want you to notice this, this is human beings reflecting on how they feel that God is treating them, okay? So if you went back to the life of Jacob in the book of Genesis, you may know Jacob is like the younger born twin of Esau, and he's always grappling and fighting and clutching and trying to, to take away what was rightfully Esau's, and he deceives his father, right? His, his brother was a hairy man. It must have been very hairy because he puts on like goat skins on his neck and his arms. And is like, see, dad, touch my arms. And he's like, your voice sounds like the, I don't know, the high-pitched, nasally voice of Jacob. But your arms are like the arms of my mighty hunter son, Esau. And he's like, yes, I'm Esau. And the father blesses him because he deceived his blind father. And he goes on then to manipulate and deceive his own brother. And his brother comes in from the field and is like, I'm starving. He's like, give me your birthright and I'll give you a... It's, it's, it's fun Hebrew. He's like, I'll give you a pot of the red red, some kind of like red bean soup. And his brother's like, well, I'm, what good is my birthright? I'm going to die. And he manipulates. He connives. And how does God repay Jacob to cure him of his conniving instead of his faith is God deals with him, Jacob would say, torturously. 
Like I go off and serve my uncle Laban in a faraway place. I fall in love with his beautiful younger daughter, Rebecca, who's amazing and everything I ever hoped and dreamed of. And on my wedding night, he tricks me and he swaps out the other sister who's not so pleasant to look at, but it was, don't let this happen tonight, Daniel. Um, (laughs) Keep a light on somewhere, somehow. Do not, do not do the, the wife swap thing, Okay. But, but Jacob would say, like, God, you are dealing torturous with, and, and, and God literally, like, comes down and wrestles with Jacob. And it's like, wake up. Stop being this deceitful, conniving person, or I'm allow people to treat you with deceit and conniving manipulation to show you that what you sow, you will reap. And that's the big principle, this, this measure for measure justice. It's the law of reciprocity. Again, if you give out a certain kind of behavior in your life, don't be surprised when that comes back to you in kind, not only from that person or that group of people or that other tribe of people, but from God himself. By the way, I want you to notice that in God's justice, both actions and attitudes matter. When he's talking about humility versus pride, that, that's an attitude of your heart, Why? Because God isn't just after your compliance. He is after your heart. He doesn't just set up standards and rules and say, do the rules. I don't care about your attitude. He cares deeply about your attitude. He cares deeply that you're walking with him and you're surrendering to him because you love him and you trust him and you want him to have authority in your life to tell you what's good, what's healthy. And if I pause right there, by the way, at this point in the message, Just knowing that God is a just judge who repays us according to our actions and our attitudes and what we believe. Like, wouldn't you want to be the kind of person who pursues the reward? Like, God is not hiding that, like, oh, just just get me. He's he's like, I mean, C.S. Lewis and others have said this, like, he God must think our desire for reward is too small, that we're too easily pleased, too easily rewarded. Because in Psalms like this, he's heaping up these rewards and saying, like, I'll give you this, I'll give you this, I'll do this for you, I'll be this for you. Just follow me in faith. So as we have a choice every day, many times a day, to either pursue the blessing, or in a sense, if we were honest with ourselves, to, to pursue the judgment, let's pursue the blessing. So that's the center of this. And David's saying, I'm trying to pursue the blessing. I'm trying to walk with you. I'm trying to please you. I'm trying to keep you first place in my life. And then his second point of this storyline then is that God rescues the righteous. Let's begin reading here in verse 4. He says, the cords of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried out for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and a devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. 
He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire, and he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundation of the world was laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils, he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Interesting language, like very picturesque language. It's not just like, uh, I was in trouble, I was in a battle, I didn't know what to do, I, I was overwhelmed, I was about to die, and God rescued me. He uses this imagery of cords just wrapping around him. And I, I picture someone entangled in the cords of a ship and they, they can't break free and they're drowning and they know they're drowning and that this thing is greater than them and they're gasping for breath and fighting to the surface but going under. And he shows God like appearing in natural disasters, earthquakes and clouds and fire and, and, and thunder and lightning and all of these things. And Um, What I want you to pay attention to is this is the language of the Exodus. When he says God opened a channel through the sea and the foundations of the earth were laid bare, he's talking about like the day that the Israelites fled from hundreds of years of bondage in Egypt and God was delivering them and opened a way literally through a sea for them to pass through. And then he leads them with a pillar of cloud by day to shelter them from the scorching heat of the sun and a pillar of fire at night to keep them warm when the desert suddenly cools and it's dark and he's leading them. And he takes us all the way to Sinai where there's this cloud and thick darkness hovering over this mountain where Moses goes up and the people are trembling in fear. The the ground is quaking and the lightnings are flashing forth and the sound of thunder and this voice from heaven. And David David is, I think, intentionally saying something like this. Um, I I don't think his claim is like this this stuff literally happened. Because you can go back to 2 Samuel and read David's story and be like, "When, when did that happen? But he's using the language of Exodus and Sinai and the conquest of the promised land to say something that redemptive happened in my life. That when God was fighting these battles for me, it's like he showed up and did the same kind of redemptive stuff for me as what he did for Moses and our forefathers. Enjoy the poetry here. Again, not, oh, people were chasing me and I could have died. He's just the, the picturesque description of his oppression, his calamity, his fear, how close he was to death. Now jump and read, starting in verse 28 with me. He says, again, backing out. So he's going to say the redemption part, the rescue part, a second way. For it is you who light my lamp, the Lord my God lightens my darkness For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but Yahweh? 
And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet, for you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me seek under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save them. They cried to Yahweh, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. A little different tone here, right? It's not, not metaphorical, not cords of Sheol wrapped around me and thunders and lightnings. It's, it's the language of battle. And I want you to notice three things about this section. First of all, I want you to note that that David believes in God and he is deliberately going to God and seeking God as his shelter and as his strength. This is mimicking the New Testament, by the way, in the armor of God, which we recently looked at in Ephesians, where, like, yes, God is your defense. He is a a fortress, a shield that is a, a defensive, protective weapon that you would be wise to hide yourself in and under. But then when he says, Lord, you gave strength to my arm to bend the bow and to take up the sword and to go and fight these battles, that is shifting from a defensive battle to an offensive battle. You notice David is actually in God's strength fighting back against evil so that its influence and its power are diminished. That's a good thing. Secondly, I want you to notice that salvation ultimately requires not just the deliverance of the righteous, but also the destruction of the evil. It necessarily requires that. I mean, I just shared this about all this imagery from the Exodus. And when Moses is over and over saying to the Pharaoh, the the king of Egypt, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, who's this Yahweh guy? I don't know him. So no, my answer is no. And there are these series of warnings known as plagues where Pharaoh continues to harden his heart and lock it up against the work of God and just say, no, I will continue to oppress, I will continue to abuse, I will continue to slaughter innocent Jews. And on the night that God leads them out, there has to be a crushing of the evil power to let his people go. Or, or more recently, as we think of a number of world wars, like someone had to go in and fight a battle against the Nazis to free those from concentration camps, to, to let them go, to give them their deliverance and their life and health and peace back. But that involved the destruction of people like Adolf Hitler, who were only evil. That's what we're reading here. So don't read into it any more than that. God literally says elsewhere, I, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but if you continue to oppose me 
and to hurt and oppress and kill and destroy and rape and maim and manipulate and exploit other people, God cares about all those other people, and he's going to do something about it. That's good news if you want to stand on God's side. And then thirdly, I want you to note that there's a salvation from something, and there's a salvation to something. We often think of just, I've been saved from my troubles, but saved to what? Notice here, David says, I was rescued from distress, from destruction, from drowning, from death. I was rescued from calamity, from darkness, and strife. To what? He says, a broad, safe place, a place that's high and secure. That's his language. Uh, and I thought of this, these times where in the past, in, in North Carolina, in Missouri, here in Colorado, um, I've taken both official cave tours and also like some unofficial cave tours, which are more inadvisable. Um, but sometimes you're following a friend who's like, oh, don't worry, I've, I've done this three times or, or maybe, maybe twice, like, trust me, you know? And so you're, you're like, you're down on your knees and you're crawling through something. And you're like, I, I don't know that my body fits through there, but, but your body just fits through there. And I hope my body fits when I'm coming back the other way and it goes through the same thing. And you're crawling further and further and it's getting darker and darker, and then if you turn off your little headlamp, it's pitch black. Your hand's in front of your face, and you're doing this, and you're like, this is, this is not a good feeling. What is a good feeling is kind of worming your way back out of that cave, and then like, I remember one time just being like, oh, like sunlight, like a broad place. There's a stream. I'm going to go just like fall into the stream and feel alive again. You know, it's cold wake me up. Metaphorically, that's what David is saying. I was in this tight spot, this dark spot. You brought me out into the light, into this broad place where it's safe and I can spread out and stretch and just experience the grace of your blessing. And my point is, friends, like God doesn't just see you in trouble and be like, well, you got yourself in trouble, so good luck. And he doesn't even say, I, I see you in trouble. Let me kind of bring you back to neutral and from this place of neutrality, I hope you choose better next time. God is this loving father. is like, I see you in trouble, and I'm going to bring you way over here. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you joy and peace and love and contentment and all these things, all these blessings in me. And that's what David is reflecting on here, that in all these verses of, of praise, uh, of reflecting on the deliverance, he's like, God, you saved me from that to this. And then the story finishes this way. Point three is then God receives praise for what he's done. And that's the beginning and the end of the psalm. David's like, you set the standard. I, I followed the standard and you rescued me and you blessed my life. And now in front of everyone, I can't help but praise you. So again, verse one, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon Yahweh, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. And you see, like David's just heaping up one mental image, one illustration or picture after another, strength, rock, fortress, deliverer, refuge, shield, horn of salvation, stronghold. And I want you to notice David not only believes in God, trusts God, but David loves God. I think that's so important. He starts, I love you, Lord, my strength. 
You know, Autumn and Daniel get married tonight, but this is for all of us. Like, if you were looking at someone and you were like, I want to join myself to that person in marriage, why? Uh, I'm saying this from Autumn's perspective, because I, I look at Daniel, he's going to be a provider and a protector. But do you love him? No. But he's a provider and a protector. Like, I want provision, I want protection. You'd be like, well, that, that's not a healthy marriage. Do you have a healthy marriage with God? Where you're like, I, I look to his hand for the gift. Do you, do you love him? Do you have an affection for him? Do you treasure him? And I love that David says, my heart responds to, because in the last verse of this psalm, his steadfast love, my heart is responding to the draw and the protection and the blessing of his steadfast love for me. And I love him, treasure him, intimately desire him in return. Jump to the end of the psalm and again, verse 46 The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued people under me, who delivered me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You rescued me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Now, this, this is repeating the first few verses of the psalm. You can kind of hyperlink, like look at key words and be like, oh, I see how he's flipped it around and is saying the same thing in, with, with many of the same key words and, and many other words. But I think there's something we're meant to see here at the end, how he ends, and that is David is going public with his praise. And he's like, I am deliberately giving you thanksgiving in front of the nations. By the way, Romans 15 will quote this verse as a declaration of Jesus Christ in front of the Gentile nations, a promise of the gospel, not just to go to the Jewish people, but to go to the ends of the earth. Why? Because other people have, have voiced that praise to God. Jesus Christ died for my sins and rose from the dead and gives me this free gift of grace, and his grace is for anyone who simply trusts in him, and, and that's how Romans is going to use this. Pretty cool. Going public with your praise, testifying that Yahweh is the only God. There's no shelter, no defense apart from him. And I've got a couple applications in closing here, which will go quick. But before I do that, one more thing, and that is like there, there's an elephant in the room in this text. And maybe some of you caught what it is. Maybe you didn't. If not, if you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Here, here's what it is. Okay, so we know historically that David writes this psalm near the end of his life. Um, how in the world can David, near the end of his life, claim to have clean hands and a pure heart? Like, on, on what planet can he pretend like he didn't wander away from God's commandment? He's like, I have set your commandments always before me. And you're like, no. No, because if you know the story, he's king. He gets all this power. He gets all this authority. He's walking around his rooftop. Well, there's a beautiful woman who's bathing. She's not my wife, but I'll make her my wife. And he commits adultery with this woman named Bathsheba. And he tries to cover it up, but the husband, he's just oblivious. He's like, I should be at war. Why do you have me home with her? I'm not going to go into her. And he's like, well, shoot, she's pregnant. I, I got to kill Uriah now. And he commits an act of murder. And that's some audacity to sit here and be like, yeah, God rescued me because... I'm righteous, and my enemies are not. 
I'm like, no, you're, you're a stinking liar and adulterer and murderer, just like your enemies are liars and adulterers and murderers. That brings us to this fourth point that's so important, the Savior of Psalm 18. Because you do see in the psalm that God treats David as if he were blameless. God treats David as if he has clean hands and a pure heart. Uh, by, by the way, I, I don't think David is being as arrogant as it sounds. Like, I, I am blameless. I have clean hands and a pure heart. I, I don't think he's forgotten about his adultery and murder. I don't think he thinks he's blameless in himself. Can you look again at verse 32 where he says, God equipped me with strength. God made my way blameless. He's saying, how, how is my journey, how is my conduct, my way of life considered blameless? God did that. How? Well, go back to verses 4 through 19 one last time. Not, not that I'm going to read them, but I want to reference them. Who else was encompassed with the cords of death and Sheol? Who else was assailed and confronted by death and destruction? Who else cried out to the Lord in his distress? When else was the earth shaken and covered with thick darkness? Like, does this, this language looks back? So cool. This language looks back to the first exodus. It also looks forward to the second exodus. Because Matthew chapter 27 says this, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus our Messiah, is hanging on a cross. And Matthew writes, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Okay, it's as if, it's as if Matthew hyperlinks to Psalm 18. He's like, remember that darkness, the flashes of lightning, the earth quaking and the ground splitting open. What he's doing is he's saying, pay attention. These are all clues that something really big and redemptive is about to happen. Like God is coming with his rescue. But then he didn't. He didn't. Because Jesus is the one crying out. Jesus is the one, Father, deliver me. And he's like, where are you? There is no deliverance for the son. The, the cords of death and hell pulled him under. He cried out and there was no rescue for him. There was death. Why? Because God took the weight of our sin on himself. I think it's pretty easy to be a lifeguard now, that qualification. Right out of college, they changed the rules of like all the tests you had to do because back when I was young, one of the things you had to do was tread water with an eight-pound brick out of the water. You had to hold it out of the water, touch nothing, and it was like two or three minutes that you had to do this. And it, it took like a semester to work up to the ability to do that. If you had to keep doing that and keep doing that and keep doing that, resolve that yourself, we're all drowning. And, and the gospel is basically like, 
We just all gave Jesus our brick. All gave Jesus our brick. And he just goes down. He's dead. But coming back to the language of Psalm 18 and in verse 19, let's make no mistake, the father delighted in the son because three days later, Jesus walks out of his own tomb and is exalted to the right hand of the father. This is why he says, the Lord lives and blessed be the rock of my salvation. Yes, he died. We'll, we'll, we'll commemorate that and celebrate that in just a few moments. He, he went down. He took the weight upon himself so people like David and people like you and me could be redeemed forever. Jesus Christ is the ultimate shepherd king about whom this psalm is written. So I said I'd give you a couple boom, boom, boom applications. Number one, trust Christ alone who is not spared from his enemies so that you and I can be spared from ours. And by the way, the New Testament is really clear about this, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So I'm not saying, like, let's go arm ourselves with, you know, swords and spears and AK-47s and be like, there's our enemy, let's go do like David. No, he, he's clear that, like, there's been a shift, and your enemies are not those people, but, it, but it's the adversaries of darkness, and, and it's the violence, and it's the death, and it's the, it's the twisting of everything. But we are spared from all of that. Because Jesus was not. So just, if you haven't already, this morning you just say, God, I want to know more about you, but I, I, I trust this Jesus who took this for me. Secondly, as you trust Jesus, seek God as your rock. This is not just like, oh, that's cool. He sought God as a rock and a fortress and a shelter and a defense, and he uses all these words. Um, there's an invitation in verse 30 where David is no longer just describing what happened to him. He says, this God, Yahweh, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Okay, so let's, let's go back to this, this illustration of like, there, there's a tornado coming and the house is coming in um, and, and I'm here, okay? Why am I not crushed? It's because the thing next to me is. The thing next to me takes the blow. Okay? When he says, God is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. You ever, you ever thought about a shield? The shield is going to take blow after blow after blow so your head doesn't. And that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He said, bring it down on me. Bring the sword down on me. Bring the spear in my side. Bring the nails in my hands and feet so that it never touches people who come under my shelter. And I'm inviting you to do that once for all, but I'm also inviting, like, day to day, what, what right now are you like, God, I cannot absorb another blow financially with my health, with this relationship, with my job, or not having a job, or being on the streets. I, I just cannot go on and take another hit. Then hide yourself in Jesus. Like, just practically say, I got to learn more about what that means, what that looks like, but I'm seeking you as my rock. And then finally, having done one and two, so I mean having trusted Christ and then seeking him as your rock, your defense, your shield, shamelessly and thankfully, publicly praise God. And that's, that's what my sermon is doing this morning. It's like, you can be like, well, I don't believe in your God. 
And I care deeply if you don't. Hear me, I care deeply if you don't. But it also doesn't change the fact that, that I'll say with David, who is a God like our God? Who is a rock like Jesus? Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Psalm 18.